Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called The Glory and Honor of the Nations. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, May the 9th, 2010. Last week I watched the award-winning film called God Grew Tired of Us from back in 2005. It's based upon the book of the same title by John Bull Dow with Michael Sweeney from the year 2007. It's hard to imagine anyone surviving what Dow describes in the book and in the film. By the time he started copying books from a Kenyan refugee camp library, learned English and Swahili in order to understand school instruction, passed the Kenyan high school exam, then made it to Syracuse, New York, Dow had wandered a thousand miles over 14 years from his bucolic village in southern Sudan. Sudan is the largest country in Africa and one of the most complex, with 572 tribes that speak 14 languages. It's also one of the most war-torn countries. The Darfur genocide in western Sudan rightly grabs our attention, but for 25 years civil war raged in the southern part of Sudan. The Arab and Muslim government in Khartoum has tried to impose strict Islam as the state religion for the entire country, but the Christian South has rebelled. In 2005, a comprehensive peace agreement was reached, but things remain fragile. When the Khartoum government bombed Dow's village of Duke Payel in 1987, he fled with thousands of other displaced Sudanese. He was 13 years old. Rape, disease, pillage, daily burials, wild animals, famine, government troops, and hostile tribes, none of these prevented Dow and about 265,000 Sudanese from reaching refugee camps to, in Ethiopia to the east. Most of them were young boys and a few old men. Women and girls couldn't survive and so they became known as the Lost Boys of Sudan. When Ethiopian troops started slaughtering them, the refugees then tracked 500 miles south to refugee camps in Kenya. By that time, Dow was 18 years old. After nine years in the refugee camp, he was one of only 3,600 Sudanese refugees in Kenya who were resettled in the United States. Dow was one of the few success, success stories. He was totally self-sufficient about six months after he arrived in America. He finished community college, entered Syracuse University, met and married a Sudanese woman from his Dinka tribe, started several foundations to help Sudan, and sent most of his hourly wages back home. But at one point in the movie, memory and emotion overwhelmed Dow as he describes what he and tens of thousands of others endured. I felt like God had forgotten us, that he had grown tired of us. 
Psalm 67 for this week reminds us that God is not a territorial or parochial God. He has not forgotten or grown tired of any nation or any person. Rather, according to the psalmist, his salvation extends to all nations. He rules the peoples justly and guides the nations of the earth. His love and justice extend not just to one people or place, but to, quote, all the ends of the earth. Originating from an ancient writer of a geopolitically marginal people, I'm always amazed at the cosmic scale of the Hebrew Psalms. The psalmist pushes us beyond all ethnocentric boundaries to embrace every other, and beyond every egocentric preoccupation to worship only God. The reading from Revelation this week does the same thing. At first glance, the new heaven and new earth seem narrowly Jewish. A perfected Jerusalem descends from heaven to earth, complete with twelve gates representing the twelve Hebrew tribes. Of course, four thousand years ago, God formed Israel as a special people. Israel was and always will be a singular people, says Elie Wiesel, but they've never been a superior people. In fact, by electing one people, God always intended to bless every nation. He promised Abraham in Genesis 12:3 that in him all the families of the earth will be blessed. In fact, the heavenly Jerusalem that descends to earth is a cosmopolitan city par excellence. We read in chapter 21, 24 to 26 of Revelation, the nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Flowing through the city center is a river, and on the banks of the river are the tree of life, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. The ancient promise to Abraham has become an empirical reality today. The book of Acts by Luke begins in Jerusalem. It proceeds geographically outward, and in his final chapter ends with Paul in the imperial city of Rome. And under house arrest, Paul's last recorded prayer before his martyrdom was, quote, for all nations, Romans 16, 26. But that was only a modest beginning. Starting with a few uneducated, bedraggled disciples, Today, about a third of the world identifies itself as Christians, nearly twice as many as those who follow Islam or Hinduism, roughly a billion each. Two radical corollaries fall from this global character of God's kingdom. The decentralization of your geography in the reorientation of your politics. Christians are geographic, cultural, national, and ethnic egalitarians. For Christians, there is no geographic center of the world, but only a constellation of points equidistant from the heart of God. Proclaiming that God lavishly loves all the world, each person in every place, the gospel does not privilege any country as exceptional. A Bosnian Muslim is no further away from God's love 
than an American Christian. A Honduran Pentecostal is no closer to God's love than an Oxford atheist. Much has been written lately about American exceptionalism and our global dominance. In terms of economic, political, military, scientific, and cultural influence, it's true that America is unrivaled. In that sense, it's accurate to say that America is exceptional. Although there's no reason to think that our exceptionalism will last forever, or that its influence is always good. But from a theological or Christian point of view, America is no more or less exceptional in God's eyes than Sudan. While allowing for a natural and wholesome love, perhaps even a pride in your own country, there's no place like home. In the long run, Christian egalitarianism subverts every form of geopolitical nationalism. Our ultimate citizenship, said Paul, is a spiritual one, Philippians 3.20. Christian globalism also asked me to care as much about every country and people as I do my own. Christians grieve the deaths of 100,000 Iraqi civilians. Some experts place the figure at more than 1.3 million. As much as the 4,385 American soldiers killed in Iraq, or the 1,025 soldiers killed in Afghanistan. Christians lament the human tragedy of the 2008 cyclone Nargis that killed 140,000 people in Burma, as much as they do the recent earthquakes in Haiti and Chile. Christian globalism implies that your politics become reoriented, non-aligned, unpredictable by normal canons. In the Gospels, Jesus never proposed any political program. There's no such thing as a Christian politics. And efforts by both Democrats and Republicans to co-opt Jesus for their side badly distort his message. Rather, Jesus calls us to something far more radical and demanding. He asks us to do what God himself does, as expressed in the two most famous verses in all the Bible. He calls us, according to John 3.16, to love the whole world, and in Mark 12.31, to love our neighbor as ourself. For further reflection, consider what the Kenyan theologian John Mbiti once said. The centers of the church's universality are no longer in Geneva, Rome, Paris, London, and New York, but in Kinshasa, Buenos Aires, Addis Ababa, and Manila. Or ask yourself, is the core of my personal identity formed more by nationalistic cultural values or by the kingdom of God proclaimed by Jesus? Meditate upon Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, where the Apostle John envisioned heaven populated by people from every nation, tribe, people, and language. And for further reading, see the two books by Philip Jenkins, The Next Christendom, The Coming of Global Christianity, 2002, and The New Faces of Christianity, Believing the Bible in the Global South. 
2006, both by Oxford University Press. The Glory and Honor of the Nations. For books this week, I review Greg Mortensen's Stones into Schools, promoting peace with books, not bombs, in Afghanistan and Pakistan. New York Viking, 2009, 420 pages. Greg Mortensen's new book picks up where his bestseller Three Cups of Tea, 2006, left off in the way back in the year 2003. That first book has sold three million copies in 40 countries and enjoyed three years atop the New York Times bestseller list. Without accepting a penny of government or USAID money, Mortensen, his Central Asia Institute, and what he calls his Dirty Dozen Afghan and Pakistani nationals have built 131 schools that serve 58,000 students, mainly girls. His new book, Stones into Schools, focuses on their most recent effort to build schools in one of the poorest and most remote regions on earth, the long panhandle of northeast Afghanistan called the Wakhan Corridor. Development economists have their sharp disagreements about how to help the poor, but most of them agree that there's no greater force multiplier than educating young girls and women. Life expectancy and earning power rise. Infant and maternal mortality drop. Families have fewer and healthier children. They delay having their first child, and so on. Mortensen adds to this his own distinct philosophy of focusing on the least and the last of the world. People who are not merely ignored, but who are totally unknown to the rest of the world. He actually thinks that it's important to listen to these local people and to build their trust. Mortenton is quick to give all the credit to the nationals who have labored in unimaginably difficult conditions and places. There's Sarfraz Khan, who speaks seven languages, and the warlord Sadhar Khan, who's battled the Soviets and Taliban for 30 years and then urged Mortenson that, quote, we must turn these stones into schools. Much of the story reads like Indiana Jones, and when you read closely, you realize how much of a maverick and renegade Mortensen is. He travels with $50,000 bricks of cash. He'll shake hands with the devil to build schools. He avoids political ideologies and religious controversy. For a long time, his Central Asia Institute was not even registered with the Afghan government as an official NGO. But his highly unorthodox style has paid off. Just, just before his ouster, Pakistan's president, Pervez Musharraf, awarded him one of the country's highest medals of honor. And although critical of the U.S. military, he has befriended senior people in the Pentagon, including Mike Mullen, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who opened one of their schools. Mortensen now acknowledges his deeply rewarding relationships with at least some people in the military, and for a long time now, three cups of tea has been required reading for many military people. It took ten years to fulfill a promise he made to the warlord Sadar Khan, but with patience and perseverance, creativity and innovation, 
Mortensen ends this book with how they opened a four-room school in Bazai Gumbaz, their rem the most remote school that sits atop the world at 12,480 feet in the furthest northeast corridor of the Wakhan Corridor. The title of the book, Stones into Schools, by Greg Mortensen. For film this week, I reviewed a fascinating documentary called Lord Save Us From Your Followers. In case you haven't noticed, there's a clash of cultures provoked by the role of religion in our society. Think of Ann Coulter, Bill O'Reilly, and Glenn Beck on one side, yelling at Howard Stern, Bill Maher, and John Stewart on the other. Or, as we see in this documentary film, the City Council of St. Paul, Minnesota, banning the Easter Bunny from City Hall because of its association with Easter. Filmmaker Dan Merchant dons a jumpsuit plastered with religious cliches when he hits the road to interview people on the street about why a gospel of love so bitterly divides people. The results were predictable, and in some ways I thought this film was a tedious glimpse of the obvious. Its dozens of cameos lack any narrative direction except to tag the bases of hot-button issues. But in the last 30 minutes, he pivots to consider witnesses that he considers more authentic to the Christian story. Bono, Pope John Paul II, Nelson Mandela, Tony Campolo, and even Rick Warren. He himself sets up a confession booth at a Portland Gay Pride Festival. Only he was the one confessing the sins of believers. In the end, he peddles an important message, which is that people need not agree in order to be nice. Lord Save Us From Your Followers has drawn comparisons with Bill Maher's mockumentary, Religious. Only this time, the satirist is himself a Christian. Lord Save Us From Your Followers And finally this week, we've posted a poem by Joshua Sylvester, who lived from 1563 to 1618. The title of the poem is The Father. Alpha and Omega, God alone. Eloi, my God, the Holy One, whose power is omnipotence, whose wisdom is omniscience, whose being is all sovereign bliss, whose work perfection's fullness is, under all things, not undercast, over all things, not overplaced, within all things, not there included, without all things, not thence excluded, above all, over all things reigning, Beneath all, all things I sustaining. Without all, all containing soul. Within all, filling full the whole. Within all, nowhere comprehended. Without all, nowhere more extended. Under, by nothing overtopped. Over, by nothing underpropped.
unmoved thou movest the world about, unplaced within it or without, unchanged, timeless, time thou changest, the unstable thou, thou still stable, rangest, no outward force nor inward fate can thy drad essence alterate. Today, tomorrow, yesterday, with thee are one in instant A. A undivided, ended never, today with thee endures forever. Thou, Father, mates this mighty ball, of nothing thou createst all, after the idea of thy mind, conferring form to every kind. Thou wert, thou art, thou wilt be ever, in thine elect, rejectest never. The title of the poem, The Father, by Joshua Sylvester. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, May the 9th, 2010. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.